What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Rob Bagshaw, former EVP of Unscripted at Nickelodeon, showrunner extraordinaire, jack-of-all-trades. As you're about to find out, Rob Bagshaw is really like the Swiss army knife of producers. Has one of the most diverse resumes of any guests we've had here on the show. Uh, came from his native England, where he show ran and worked in live TV and production there. Came out to the U.S., kind of had culture shock uh, with the difference in the in the systems in reality TV between the UK and US. He also then went and worked in Australia, show ran Project Runway All-Stars. Rob has plenty of stories to share. Was interesting to hear from him how he went from a traditional kind of show running reality TV background and then was thrust into this position overseeing Unscripted for a kids and family division. And I think there's a lot to learn about the future of content through the lens of what the generation behind us, these Nickelodeon viewers, are gravitating towards. So when we recorded this, Rob was still at Nickelodeon. We didn't know when the timing of this episode release would come out. So he is talking about Nickelodeon in the present tense. Obviously, he knew that he was going to be leaving soon. So we didn't want to tease anything or break any news at the time. So just want to get that out there as you're listening to the podcast to know the timeline of it all. Uh, if you have the chance to work with Rob now that he's a showrunner, now that he's back to producing, I suggest you do so. This is my sit down with Rob Bagshaw. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so you're in Vegas right now? I'm catching you in Sin City? Yes, but not for any sin. It's all for work. All business, no pleasure, obviously. No, we're um we're on location for what I think might be the first TV capture of a live stage show during lockdown. So, of course, all live theatre you know, has been on hold for a long time. Um, we have a national tour of Paw Patrol Live. If anyone's got kids, they're familiar with Paw Patrol. The national tour is a big hit. Um, we are remounting the production in an empty Cirque du Soleil theatre wow. and filming it for a streaming event. So it'll be a pay-per-view streaming event uh, interact with interactive elements. So you can buy a ticket, sit at home, interact with the pups get your own avatar, have a great time, see some live theater from the comfort of your own home. And then we're going to do a non-interactive traditional version of the cut down so that we can put it out on linear and uh, PVOD and everything else afterwards. Oh my God. That sounds like a major production and a major undertaking. Yeah. Always. It always is, right? Any Anytime you, you start doing filming in a lockdown, everybody knows. doesn't matter if it's location, uh, studio, pre-tape, live, celeb talent, contestants, kids, everything. It's its a lot of work. I think COVID puts at least an additional 30%, not just on your budget, but, but also in the time, you know, in pre-production, thinking it through. Certainly filming is a painstaking process. Yeah. Um, and if you're in an executive position and you feel responsible for everybody, you know, I can't sleep at night during production at the best of times, whether it's I'm a showrunner or an exec, you know, until I don't want anyone to cut their finger, let alone anything else. Oh, dude, every day after rap on a show during COVID, when I get into my car and can finally take off my mask, driving home, it's like Jerry Maguire putting on free falling in the car, right? It's just to make it through another day with no delays <laughs> is, is a big well, exhale. Well, I'm going to say... 
It's an interesting example is the show that we were we had the privilege of doing together in the fall, which was the kids elimination competition series Top Health for yeah. Nick, right? Yeah. As you as the production company have a big responsibility there. Certainly we as a network feel a responsibility to everyone from the kids to the celeb talent to the crew. I think it's testament to how you and the Duffy brothers um, worked in pre-production to make sure that the safety protocols allowed everybody to do their jobs well in very different conditions than normal. Um, not one, not cleared for work, because we don't say positive result, we say not cleared for work, not one of those positive tests of um, several thousand tests over the course of like a five-week period. I think it yeah. says a lot about you know, the production company, but also the, the professional crew in LA who weren't isolating, but agreed to go through the safety process, of course, but just showed how much that they wanted to work and to show to the community that it was possible um, to do that with a hundred plus crew over five weeks, you know, in September, October was really interesting. Well, thanks, man. No, that, 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 that means a lot. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, let's, let's talk about you because your bio, this is fun for me because I've now known you for two years, but I've never had any time to like catch up and dig deep into, you know, your backstory. I know. We're always work, 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 right? I know. Always. No, this is, this is, <laughs> this is great. And your, your bio, swear to God, your bio reads like you're the most interesting man in the history of reality TV. Like you have so- Oh, well, that's some spin. That is spin, <laughs> obviously, because that's not true. But a lot, of tra- a lot of travels. And before we even get to your backstory, another thing is- I don't think people realize just how busy your department at Nickelodeon has been on the unscripted front. I mean, to be honest, because before you got there, I don't think I'd ever, I don't know if I'd ever pitched Nickelodeon before, before you got there, like you coming in as EVP was really a new initiative to really ramp up and unscripted. Am I, am I wrong in, in stating it that way? No, that's that's absolutely right. Of course, Nickelodeon has had some unscripted, you know, legacy titles over the years. Double Dare probably being the biggest, or certainly game shows being the biggest. You know, my my department, unscripted content and live events, is responsible for our tent poles as well. So there's the Kids Choice Awards, as the right. obvious one. Those have been going for a long time. But you're absolutely right in that when Brian Robbins came in in November of 2019. Um, there wasn't really a lot of content in the pipeline across the board, actually. Nick mm. was really relying on its animation IP, some scripted series like Henry Danger that had been going well, but really no unscripted at all. He had just greenlit a reboot of Double Dare. There was two seasons, over 40 episodes, shot back to back. I came in in the middle of that. But he brought me in, really, to create an unscripted division. And I think in the two years that we've tried a lot of things in different you know, game show Elimination competition, docu-series, you know, celeb access, all that good stuff. Um, we're beginning to realize uh, what does work for our audience on Nick. And, and for you coming in, when you came off from, from show running for many years, how much did research play a part as you take pitches, as you circulate an idea internally? How many channels does it need to go through? I, I'm on the outside. I've never been at a network. I, I especially have not spent the majority of my career doing kids and family programming. I've just started to do that over the last couple of years with Top Elf and, and, and Punky. So like, how much does research play a role in giving you guidelines of what you can and can't do? A lot. I mean, that is a huge question because... 
you know, for any kind of uh, sort of freelance producer or someone who's creating content that hasn't had been on the other side of the table, taken pictures, you know, commissioned a show from the inside. Um, but I had never been on that side of the table. I've not really been in corporate life, certainly not in America. You know, I, you can tell from my accent. I'm not a, I'm not a Yank. I'm a Brit. Um, and you walk, just, and talk about corporate. You walked into the most corporate structure <laughs> with Viacom CBS. And that's my words, not yours. So I'm not. Well, I, could, I would never I would never say that. But I also don't have anything to compare it to. So it's one of the reasons that I was interested in taking the job to, to have a blank slate and the ability to, to make content, especially for kids and family, which is very life affirming. I didn't think I would say that, but it is because I come from reality, a lot of big trashy reality shows, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But but to do content for kids and family, especially over the last 18 months or so, mm. has, has been a privilege. So it was a great opportunity. But boy, did I not appreciate just how much network execs have to work hard for their shows mm-hmm. just as much as the person who created them or the independent part, uh, you know, party who's who's producing them. Uh, and, and to answer your question, sorry, indirectly, research has been invaluable, especially to me learning a new demo, let alone le- learning a new audience or a, a, a new network. Um, there's a big research insights uh, department at Nickelodeon as well as Viacom. You know, they they talk to five thousand or so kids every day across the country, just getting a temperature check on what's important to them in life, in culture, in politics, in news, as as well as what matters to them in terms of their entertainment and, and how they consume it. So that's it's been invaluable when we're looking at new ideas, research. We go to sometimes just with the paper treatment, let alone a, a pilot, and obviously we test series as well. Yeah. But what, what was, what's been the biggest eye-opener that's come out of research that you were shocked to find out about this younger generation that you never saw coming? Well, kids are watching they or consuming their content, to use a you know, corporate term, on lots of different platforms, right? I'm, you know, I, I always thought I was a TV producer. Now we're all content providers. You know? So kids are taking their content in different forms. And because they watch a lot of YouTube, because unfortunately a lot of them have phones, they're watching very small screens or capture or, or watching material in, in in short bites. I've learned as a producer who cares about several things when you're making a good show, story being the first and foremost, but production values, quality of production, execution being pretty high up there. And I love my visuals, I love my production values, but I've learned that actually. That's not the number one priority for kids. It's what resonates with them. And that usually is a good story, but it's very much often uh, representation or what matters to them or what they're super interested in. Production values less so. Um, Partly just the, the practicality of watching something in short bites, but also... They love their YouTube stars. They love their TikTok stars, digital stars. That, those are, that's very organic material that people are self-creating. And so our, a young audience is super into watching that. It's pretty raw. As long as it's authentic and it's a good story, kids will take it. So you know, they don't necessarily need every show to be the big shiny floor that, that adult uh, audiences or even producers often want to make or expect to watch. Well, absolutely. I mean, especially when you're seeing eight-year-olds unboxing things on YouTube, getting 10 million views. So clearly there's something that kids are connecting with emotionally yeah. that has nothing to do with production value, right? To, to, to your point, you have a generation that are actually, you know, adopting digital content before they ever get savvy to television content, it seems most times. 
Sure. And then look, go right back to the studio system where stars were really held up on a pedestal as stars. You didn't know their private life or if, or if you did, it was all produced by the, the studio. You know, now we all know that for celebs to get absolute access to their audience, they do it directly, or at least the perception of them doing it directly. It's very intimate. It's very personal. It's pretty rough and ready. And it's and it's at least seemed to be more authentic that way. Um, and so so kids will take that. But you you still need narrative you still need structure you still need a, a format or good you know good story and sometimes you need some showbiz as well all right so let me just say one of the most enjoyable three hours i've had in quite some time was watching the nickelodeon cbs mashup collaboration on wildcard nfl sunday the the new, or- the new orleans saints game i think it was new orleans saints and the, and the chicago bears right bears. yeah that was the perfect representation of corporate synergy I've ever seen. And as a child of Nickelodeon that grew up loving Nickelodeon, it was so much fun. And it was something that I felt like as a child, I would have loved. And as I was watching, I was like, this should be on every Sunday afternoon. There should be a Nick version of CBS broadcasts every Sunday. Are we going to do more of these? Was it, was it viewed as a success? I hope so. I mean, the fact that you enjoyed it, that hopefully implies that we pulled off what we intended to do. Um, so yeah, it was it was well received, actually. Um, there was a lot of talk about how to do it. Look, I'm firstly, sure. I'm not a sports guy. You know, John, John Murray told you this when he said, you know, you asked him about some sport-related content for uh, WWE or something. He said, yeah, I'm it was not a, a WWE sports guy. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. But, and, and I'm an entertainment guy, not a sports guy. But we saw this as an entertainment uh, experience for families, right? For, for absolute, for co-viewing. Um, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody in the industry that the NFL are very protective of their brand. Yep. You know, trying to work with them has been a challenge in the past, but they are super open to, you know, they want a, more, a, 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 they want a younger audience, they want a female audience, whatever their strategy is of the time. Um, and of course, you know, our sister channel is CBS and they have the NFL license for, or certainly for those wildcard games. So I've got to say the CBS sports team um, were with us every step of the way. And, and, we, and obviously we couldn't have done it without them, not just their, their intel in sports coverage, which is, I've worked in a lot of genres. I've been very lucky to do pretty much many, many genres, except live sport coverage is an absolute unique skill. CBS Sports, of course, do that really well. Um, The NFL were nervous, but very, very open to it. So they didn't... Whose idea was it? Who who developed this idea? Where did it come from? I think uh, Brian Robbins, the president of Nick, was talking to president of CBS Sports, Sean McManus, and somebody at the NFL... And the NFL were open to playing, uh, playing with, excuse the expression, playing with their um, wildcard weekend. Got it. They divided, they divided up those games across Fox and and uh, Disney ABC um, and Viacom CBS. Um, and so that was a quick conversation to could we simulcast the game? Mm. Um, they were obviously trying to broaden their audience, so they wanted to try a, an experiment. So Brian punted it to to me and also our digital team. Um, as, as sort of how do we nickify this broadcast, but still, but not alienate uh, viewers like yourself who want to actually watch the game. Oh my God, the, sli- the slime fountains or whatever, you, what the slime cannons? The slime cannons, slime in, cannons the in the end zone? In the end zone or the slime zone, as we called it. They the did say, zone. the NFL said no to one thing. We wanted to change uh, the downlines to orange. 
and they said no because if it was, a, it was a, for Nick Orange, right? But if they they said if anybody new is coming to the to the broadcast, which of course was one of the end goals, that may be confusing. So it mm-hmm. was important to them that we respected the rules of the game, which is why we had legit commentators in Nate Burleson, totally, um, as well as, as as well as some kid content or kid presence on the screen, helping new viewers to to understand it. It became a, like a watch party. That was our goal. And and one thing also, just going through your slate, and we'll get into your backstory in a second. But another thing I want to hit on. Yes, you got you guys. You guys have been incredibly busy with returning shows. You know, like you mentioned, Double Dare. But you have Crystal Maze. You guys did Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? The Substitute, Unleashed. We've done two seasons of Top Elf. But you guys do these amazing specials at times. Kid of the Year, um, like you said, the SpongeBob uh, musical stage show. But let's talk about the Kids Choice Awards for a second, because I don't think, I don't think people understand that the Kids Choice Awards is the hardest damn ticket to get in town for attendance. And I learned this being a Hollywood assistant. Every person that works in Hollywood that has kids tries their damnedest to get a ticket to bring their kids, right? It's absolutely real. Look, I started in in February, just two, three weeks before my first Kids' Choice Awards that was coming out of my department. By that point, train had left the station. I was just there to experience it and then help shape it, you know, as best I could. But I'd never been to one before precisely for this reason. It's a hot ticket. I'm not going to name names, but you would be surprised. No. Who, who, not, not just their assistant or their office or their publicist, but who actually directly calls to get tickets for their kids. Yeah, it is absolutely a hot I mean, we're talking moguls. Moguls are trying to get tickets. Like Not necessarily in media, not in media either. No, yeah. Business, in politics, as well as the movie stars. But the movie stars are very welcome. If you're willing to get slimed, then you can come. You know, and that's and that's an honor, by the way, getting slime. Don't misunderstand it. It is not a punishment. It's not so it's not something that you do to to you prank somebody for fun. It's an honor to be slimed. It's a rite of passage. <laughs> I uh, did it on that first show. They did it on the dress rehearsal. Will Smith, we had Will Smith, and obviously he wasn't there for the dress run. So I get, you know, the hazing of of getting to be slimed. And I didn't really know what to expect, but I got it right up the nose and it's in every orifice for days <laughs> on end. You can't get it out. It's very slippery, actually, completely safe. Very harmless, but very slippery. So it is a process. You have to build a stage with plumbing underneath. And, you know, every one of those big live award shows is a, is a mammoth to make. Right. But, but the kids' choice is, you know, has some specific challenges. It's so much fun. All right. I want to go back. I want you to walk me through young Rob Bagshaw. Oh. Where did, <laughs> where did you, you grow sure? <laughs> Where did you grow up? Where in England were you, were you, brought, were you brought up? So I'm from Kent, which is the largest county, but obviously it's England, so it's still pretty small. Um, southeast of England, uh, southeast of London, about an right. hour outside of London. Right. Um, about four or five, I said that I wanted to be an actor. Okay. So I think a lot of a lot of people, especially when they're young and you don't really understand the myriad of jobs that there are in our industry, the first thing you want to do if you're interested in entertainment is be a rock, is be a, a rock star or be an actor, right? Or, or you want to drive a train or you want to be a, a sports star if that's what you're into. But when I was young, it was acting, and it took all the way through till college to really understand what else was available mm. in the entertainment industry. So I went into college wanting to be an actor, and I came out wanting to be a producer. Um, but just there was just a couple of things in that sort of childhood that solidified that this was the um, not the career, but certainly the industry for me. When I was ten, my mom, who was always very supportive, allowed me, got me into a, a news studio uh, to read the news with the local newsreader. 
So an empty TV studio or a live TV studio like is like gold gold mine to me. It's like the most exciting place. Now I think it's an empty theater that has the most potential, but an empty studio, super exciting. And to go read the news at 10 years old, simply because- Was that was on birthday. air? Was that yeah, on air? Yeah, live. Yeah, yeah. How did she set that up? Because she would write to whoever. Like my, like my favorite theater show when I was a kid is a very bad Andrew Lloyd Webber show, Starlight Express, right? Okay. So, you know, because people in America think it was a flop, but I was super into it. So for my 11th birthday, my mum wrote to the stage management and said, could Rob come? We had tickets for the show. Could he come backstage and see how it all works? Because he's fascinated with the world. So I got to, to go backstage and do that. So thanks to opportunities like that, just confirmed for me didn't know what it was. I just knew I had to be in this space. Your mom sounds amazing. She is. Yeah. Thank you. What did your mom, what, what was her background? What was her story? None of my uh, family are in entertainment in any way. My mom worked in an optician. My dad is a, uh, was a firefighter, moved huh. up the ranks from being a regular firefighter right way through to being uh, a div- divisional officer where he's in charge of uh, several counties. Um, but obviously both retired now and separated. Um, but so both supportive. I have one brother and he's into the sport and then military and, and now um, catches pedophiles of all things in the, in the police. Um, and I did the entertainment route. So two very, very different sons. Um, none of my family were in these worlds at all, but everybody was supportive. So we were, we were very lucky there. But I got to tell you, Jimmy, I, I just, I had a singular vision to get into this business and I just worked, 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 worked. Yeah. You know, really from, from 10 or 11, I was like, I was writing letters as everybody does to get autographs, but I was also asking, how did you, you get into the business? Um, when I went to college, I, so wait, you were, wait, hold, were, wait, back, we're back, back, back up. So at 10, 11, you were writing letters and you were like seeking out like informational meetings or responses of like, write me back, tell me how you got to where you are, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was, can I have a signed photo as well, please? Sure. But yeah. it was, but but the letter was really about how did you get to where you are? Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to know. I wanted to know how how they got into the industry. But, um, that, but, then, but, but like, but like, who were like the heroes at that point? Ten, eleven, Rob. Like, who are the people you would write letters to? Who were you inspired by at that point? It was mostly like in the UK, we were, we were presenters. We refer to them as presenters. So it was a lot of TV hosts and host hostess, you know, a lot of soap actors, mm-hmm. um, a few kind of pop stars, anyone that that you know tweens are interested in when they're when they're younger. But it, but it wasn't necessarily meeting them. It was understanding how they yeah. got to where they are. And and university was where. I went to university in Manchester. It was the first degree course in the UK that combined performing skills and technical skills. So it was a real grab bag of people. Um, So uh, on any one day, we would have a dance lesson and then we would have uh, a lecture in stage management or we would have a meeting about budget. Here's how to create a budget. Hmm. Well, here's how fine funding works for hmm. independent film. And then I go to a camera class and then I would do editing and then I'd be acting in somebody else's film. So over the course of the three years, the idea was you honed or you honed in on what it was you were most interested in. So out of 30 people starting the course, we all started off as wanting to want to be actors. And we came out with, I think, only five people wanting a career in the in in the, that profession. And everybody else were writers, producers, camera operators, you know, you name it. But what, what made you move on from wanting to be an actor? Because you hadn't even like really set out into the real world yet and gone through the awful experience that is auditioning and getting turned down. So you, you kind of stepped away from that goal before you ever really chased it, right? Couple- 
I did a couple of things, but I, I think I knew I knew that I wasn't as good as I wanted to be in order <laughs> to make it a profession. And I just so wanted to succeed in what I did mm. that I think I was able to have a, I'm only just thinking about this out loud now, but I was probably able to have a conversation with myself subconsciously and say, you're not good enough to be an actor. You need mm. to look at some of these other things as well. So what was the first gig that like gave you your start coming out of college? Out of college, I went to work for a, an agent that I had some work with as, a, as an actor. So I went, I got a, a job in London working. I did a couple of TV shows and stuff as, a, as an actor. In Manchester, Northern England had a lot of regional television. Okay. So I was super, super lucky there. But first real job and then the break was working for my agent. My agent repped a lot of comedians in the alternative co- comedy scene in the 80s and 90s in the UK, uh, although this was like, mid to late 90s um uh, but a lot of uh, production company heads as well uh, and as well as actors that were in the west end so as the assistant agent i got to read all of those breakdowns mm. understand character development i was reading scripts for people i was overhearing deals i was dropping off stuff to uh, you know actors on on set and um one of the people that the agency repped was jimmy mulville who sure. um, founded, along with two other uh, two other people, uh, Hattrick Productions, famous here for whose line is it anyway, and a, yeah. a bunch of drama now. But did a lot of unscripted entertain like studio entertainment and game shows. So I was offered a cruise ship dancing on a like a year's dancing, you know, job on a cruise ship <laughs> as, a, um, as a performer. You were offered, yeah, yeah, as a performer, <laughs> or or a PA job on one of Hattrick's productions. That's a tough. That's um, a tough call for me. I, I I don't know. I mean, being a perform on a cruise ship for like a summer, just you know, hanging out with other actors. The PA, no, the PA and the PA job was only ninety pounds a week. I think it was, um, but it was on a it was on a um, a sitcom. So okay. so I took so I took that went to Hattrick and for two years I was a PA and got to work on all of their different shows. Mm. Um, moved up to junior researcher on a, on a late night talk show that they were doing, became a researcher. And that's really how I got into the business. Got it. Got it. So I, I'm going, going in, into the resume here, which is, which is long and, and distinguished to borrow a line from Top Gun. Um, you, it says you, you've dealt with everything from bomb threats to elections, to streakers, funerals, slime, drunks. You've dealt with individuals uh, such as the Royals, the Prime Minister, 007, Harry Potter, Oprah Winfrey, Dame Judi Dench, the list goes on and on. Madonna is in here. I'm not so sure I know where to start, but let's start with the first big show that you worked on that kind of set you up as a showrunner. Should we start there or the first development exec job? What would be, what would be the best place to start? Maybe showrunning. Look, I've got to say, yeah. everyone who's been in the business, as long as most of us have, have a, a, a list of people that they've worked with that's just like that. I'm no different, right? I, I did a lot of entertainment. Um, so so if you're doing a late night talk show or, do, or doing morning television um, or you're working in entertainment news, which is what I did for a long time, you're going to come into contact with a lot of really interesting people. Yeah. Um, I did, in the UK, I did a lot of live television. So there's a there's a couple of headline shows that people are, may be aware of, like The Big Breakfast, which was a two-hour morning, Monday through Friday, um, crazy magazine slash news show. It's an institution um, in the UK, right? 
Absolutely is, yeah. and it, it it was anarchic, absolutely anarchic. So imagine if if Kelly and and uh, Ryan, you know, turned the cameras on the crew all the time. We were characters on the show. Um, no item was longer than three minutes. They were mm. absolutely ridiculous. So you do two hundred items in a in a two hour show. Oh my some worked, some didn't. But the next day it was all different anyway. All live. Um, massive stars coming in to plug whatever, but we would get them to do ridiculous things. A huge education as a researcher. I, w- I came in as the news researcher. My job was to find the crazy human interest story in local newspapers around the country. So the show started at seven, which meant the first production meeting was at 3.45 a.m. So I would get there just before that and I would get all the local newspapers from around the country um and look for the interesting stories and after the show went off air we would have a news meeting where i would pitch the interesting characters and then we would spend the day trying to get them to be live on the on the show the next day no internet no internet <laughs> barely a barely a barely a phone directory right we'd have to send telegrams to these people's houses and persuade them for no money to come down to london and be on the big breakfast the next day which they all would do they would all do it was it was a crazy time the spice girls turned up in our production office one day complete unknowns put their ghetto blaster on the table stood on everybody's tables and, and kind of mimed to wannabe and we were like please go away you know we're working 24 7 we have no idea who you are like it was that sort of place but it was a great education for now people were running anyone that was a researcher on that show is doing well in the business because it was hard i'm sure <laughs> well yeah i mean live tv live tv you grow up pretty fast Right. Yeah. So that references. So so that little line that somebody when I did an, an interview years ago, they wrote my bio out of some of those stories. The, the line about obviously world records. A lot of people have done that. But like, but bomb scares for sure, streakers for sure, drunks. You know, breaking news, assassination attempts where you get you you, you get thrown off air or you go to a breaking news story. Um, you know, streakers and drunk rock stars was was de rigueur on, on shows like that. But there was a, a, a situation where we had a, a, a bomb threat in the lobby of the TV studios in the UK. It was, so I was doing a show called This Morning, which is like a, a three, four hour morning magazine show, not as anarchic as the early one, as The Big Breakfast, a little bit more kind of cooking, celebrity, mm-hmm. agony advice, you know, that sort of show. But, but hours and hours on air and I was a series producer. So I ran the control room. Um, and we would have two or three news hits on the hour. There was somebody walked into the lobby of, of the studios that, that had, there were multiple studios. We were one of a dozen or so and, um, and said that they're, they're wearing a bomb, um, which, you know, in the UK, in the sort of 2000s, you know, we still had a lot of bomb threats in the UK for various, mm. you know, political reasons. So it, it was rare. It was certainly unusual to come into a, a lobby of a, a, a studio and say that. They evacuated all the studios except ours because we were on air. Everybody else oh was rehearsing God. for their, their evening studio recordings or whatever. So we stayed on air and I still had the red bat phone, you know, to, to news to be told whether we were going off air, whether we were cutting to a commercial break, you know, whatever it was. I had, every, I think Pamela Anderson um, was was one of the guests on the show that day. We had, we, we had cooking segments. We had like families. Um, we had a breastfeeding item, I think. So all of these people were like, couldn't leave. They'd done their item, but they couldn't leave the studio. And all the guests that were coming for the, the second half of the broadcast couldn't get into the studio. So you're running order as a, a live producer. You're sitting next to the director. You're sitting next to the AD who's timing everything. You know, sheets of paper flying. Everything's going up in the air. Debating whether to tell your hosts right. in their ear what was going on or not tell them or wait till the commercial break or whatever it was. Um, thankfully, nothing you know terrible happened. But 
those were scary moments. But isn't it funny how how calm? I mean, I don't sound calm and quiet now, <laughs> but how how calm you get in those moments? Like live TV really trains you for that. Like I've had a lot of very experienced, you know, production managers or, or execs or producers. We're doing a live show and they're too scared to even come in the control room. They're like, oh no 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 no. I'm like, no, please come in. I love people coming to see what we do. See how hard it is, for God's sake. Right. So that when I'm asking you for extra money or an extra day or or just a little bit more time, you can appreciate just why we need it because life is all about being prepared. No, it's, so that when something crazy happens, you've hopefully uh, got a, a gut instinct that kicks in and allows you to do your job and not freak out like everybody else. No, li- no, li- li- live TV are the Navy SEALs of our business. It's 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 another it's another breed, man. It's the another, most exciting, the most exciting, and it doesn't. And if something goes wrong, that's probably as long as nobody gets hurt you can make it work it's exciting yeah, yeah and then you can go to the pub and you don't have weeks in post no notes Jimmy. that's another no thing notes. that that's that's the <laughs> other benefit of it yeah um at this point the, the reality movement as we know it early 2000 it starts taking off so what was like the first quote-unquote reality show that you step into at, at a high level at that point so the story of how I came to the States uh, is a good example. Is that, of, is that, that what it was? That is... period. Yeah, it wasn't okay. necessarily the first show running gig. Yeah. Um, but in terms of reality in the early 2000s, um, it's a good example because it's a Mike Darnell show. Of course. <laughs> and, so, and so anyone that remembers Mike from Fox days, from Joe Millionaire and all of those fun, crazy event shows that he used to do, this was a show that, that I co-developed with a couple of friends in the UK um, we did a pilot and Mike ended up buying it for Fox. So I came over to um, set up the British company in the US to make the show, hire everybody. And I thought I was just coming for two, three weeks. I ended up staying for nine months because I ended up working on the show. The show got picked up again. Uh, we you know, continued through, through. So it was an interesting, just pitching it was an interesting experience. Coming to set up a company in Hollywood was cool. I'd only done a couple of shows in the US before, not as a showrunner in charge. Um, and I didn't run this show, but I was part of it from the development to I produced the pilot. We pulled some money from Mike in the US uh, with Channel 4 money as well in the UK. Didn't tell either of them. Uh, so that we doubled our budget so that we could produce a real pilot rather than an office right. run through right. um, and sold it to Mike. And the show was called Paradise Hotel, which a lot of people in the reality competition business remember because the format was very loose and it allowed story to go anywhere you wanted it. So wait, what was the basic premise? Was this couples stepping into the hotel together? I can't remember what the what the format was. Well, everyone was single. It's a level. So the, the the line, not quite as good as pick to live in a loft and have their lives tight. <laughs> uh, you know, not quite as good as that. But it was eleven sexy singles check into a hotel. Um, there are only five double bedrooms and one single bedroom. So the hook, the the line for the show was hook up or go home, which I'm mortified <laughs> about now. But the idea, right, was that and it was all heterosexual singles, gorgeous couple. Sorry, gorgeous people. Um, all cast actually, you know, from our, a lot of our producers were from the writer strike, so they were writers mm-hmm. who understood good, good characters, right? That was at that time. That's kind of why reality was really exploding. But we had a lot of writers working as, as casting directors and working as story producers on the show. So it was cast really interestingly with the ingenue, with the frat boy, with the smart, timid one. You know, all of all of those character tropes. But they had to share a room with somebody else so that there was one single person knocked to the single room. And their job through the week or each episode was to ingratiate themselves into 
one of the other couples. So at the end of each episode, there would be a coupling ceremony where you could swap out your partner. And the goal was to, if you were the single, was to become uh, coupled with somebody else, check into that room, and that would knock that person out. And that person would be eliminated. And the next week, somebody new would check in. So it could a go little, on forever. A little Love Island. Well, some have said that, yes. A little Love <laughs> Island in there. Just me coming fresh into this. That, that's where my yeah. mind went immediately. And talk about... Talk about coming into America and American television and specifically American reality culture. You, you got that and then some with Mike Darnell. Describe, describe to me. I mean, this is Mike Darnell, like at the dawn of reality TV where there's nobody there at Fox that can even check him and tell him what to do or keep tabs on him. Mike Darnell had a green light to do whatever he wanted. Tell me that experience of working with Mike when you first come in and pitch the show and, and what, I mean, what you took away from the man himself. It was absolutely fascinating and also batshit crazy. And I didn't really know any better because I was coming from the UK where we, we have British training and we do everything in the right way and we have a cup of tea and have a, a smart you know, production meeting. It was, all of that was out the window, but what wasn't was, was the passion and the excitement for the idea and for the show. The protocols around making the show or getting the show sold were completely unique. Uh, at that time with Mike at Fox. Um, Arthur Smith, we paired with Arthur and Kent Weed uh, at A. Smith & Co. because Mike had worked with them at Fox before. We were a British company who hadn't, had, hadn't done a lot in the States. We had the idea, but he paired us. I think it was the first time that, that Arthur's company had done that because Optimum uh, with Kitchen Nightmares, with Gordon Ramsay, and then MasterChef obviously came later. Um, so it was actually Arthur that taught me how to cut an American hour. Because huh. in the UK at that time, um, the pacing was different. We didn't have music in a lot of scenes. It was really mm. only in stings. We put waterfall music on there to help drive the story. Every character had their own motif. Um, the pacing was like three times as fast. You know, a, a story in the UK at that time that you could tell over an act, you were telling a two-minute scene here. Yeah. So yeah. Arthur, ca Arthur came into the, to the edit room with me and sat and, and shaped that pilot. So really helped get it sold. But um, but yeah, Mike was. I don't. I probably don't have as crazy a stories as a lot of other colleagues of ours in in LA. But ours, you 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 learned though never to book your flight out on the same day as a meeting that was initially scheduled because you were inevitably going to get pushed to the next day and then the next and then the next. So, yes. out, you know, dozens dozens of execs in the corridor. You know, take. You know, actually, no, they set up a Botox. Um, kind of care center in the boardroom at Fox so that people could like be occupied and if they wanted Botox or something could be happening while you were waiting for this Wait, inevitably what? late meeting. Wait, a literal Botox room? I think somebody came in and was doing Botox sessions in the boardroom for anybody who wanted them because people were there and these were titans of the, of the reality industry all waiting to pitch or cast or develop or whatever the meeting that they had with Mike was hours if not days later than their scheduled meeting people would just hang oh, yeah. around we went we went to the um what was the, the the huge hotel that was around the corner from fox that has since become something else opposite caa i know exactly i know i know which one you're talking about I'm that hotel so yeah. we were having casting in there um arthur smith kent weed and tom gutteridge who ran the production company mentor at the time um we were in there and, and tom called mike's office 
um, and spoke to his lovely wife and said, it's fine if you're late, guys. We're just going to order like another round of bottles of champagne and, and, and more food. And, or we'll just put it on your bill. We can stay here for hours. It's totally fine. Within an hour, I tell you, Mike was in the room. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. <laughs> that's Whatever cheap. you have to do to get it, to get it done. All right. So, so you are now a full-fledged member of um, the American reality TV community at this point. I, I'm going to go through, at this stage in your career, I'm just going to go through some of the greatest hits here. And at one point... No quick, hits. No hits, Jimmy. Well, I mean, the, the hits <laughs> along, 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 along your career, the milestones, we can use whatever terminology you want. Yeah, milestones, yeah. But the question, I, you have like a considerable amount of shows here where you're the in-house EP at, at uh, Nine Network in Australia. Right. So did you, was that based in Australia? Sure. Yeah. I lived in Sydney for two years before I came directly back to LA full time. That's so exciting. Yeah. And again, these were just opportunities that I was off. I wasn't looking for this sort of work. Yeah. Um, but, but as a producer, especially a freelance one, you're always like, what's next? What's next? Yes, yes, yes. I would say yes to jobs that I could have knew in my heart that I wasn't even available for because I just wanted to I just wanted to do everything that I was offered. I hate, my pet hate is a missed opportunity. I would try and cram in job after job after job. And the opportunity to go work at, at Channel 9 in Australia, be the in-house exec to help oversee and help a lot of producers there make the type of reality shows I've been doing in the UK and the US, you know, I couldn't pass it up. Australia is a little bit loosey-goosey, so you can move around in your genre. So I was doing uh, again, some news, again, some live events, as well as the traditional reality scripted, uh, uh, sorry, unscripted stuff. God, it's so exciting, man. Like I was very saying, lucky. very the lucky. In, the most interesting, most, most interesting bio I've, I've ever seen. Let's, let's go here. <laughs> but it was um, Mike, I've got to tell you, it was Mike, uh, sorry, it was Mark Itkin, who was hmm. sort of my unofficial agent, who said, Rob, why are you doing that job in, in, in Australia of all places? We can get you that sort of work here if you want to come back. Got it. So. Itkin's, Itkin's the godfather. The Godfather. Uh, every, uh, every, reality, everything stems from him and then John Murray. <laughs> uh, okay, so this one jumps off the page. Tell me about your experience as the in-house EP when you were working for BBC Worldwide, working with Oprah to co-create Lovetown USA. I mean, what was the experience working with her? What was the dynamic? How close did you get to her during the process? Actually, much closer than we ever expected or certainly more than she intended because she ended up executing the show with us. So Izzy Pick, uh, Ashcroft, uh, who's a fantastic producer, um, brought me into to BBC Worldwide in LA. Their biggest hit at the time was Dancing with the Stars. We did a bunch of other stuff, but she and I um, pitched Lovetown USA directly to Oprah in the room. And the day before that pitch meeting, we were told that cameras were going to be in the room because she was making her behind-the-scenes series on... Is it for 25 own. years of the Oprah show? Yeah, the, the, for OWN. For OWN, so right? Because I, mem I remember that series. It's like kind of what launched the channel. And um, so, you're, so you were taking a meeting while she was filming that documentary series. Yes. And so the day before, they told us that cameras were going to be in the room during our pitch meeting. And we said, no, thank you. <laughs> this is, a, this is actually, firstly, we don't go on camera. We're, this is, we're behind the scenes for a reason. But also, it was a legit pitch for a very big project for us. Um, we had a goal in that meeting, not just to come out with a green light, but we were discussing, you know, which towns we were going to shoot in across the country and really have a, a, a serious, productive meeting. It was the first time that we were going to meet Oprah, which is, you know, nerve wracking in itself because she's such a smart person, such a big deal. 
uh, huge, you know, titan in the industry. And we didn't want to go on camera. And, and we also knew, actually, no, to be fair, we didn't know this going in, but we realized it very, very quickly that the second a camera is in the room, it changes things. I mean, actually, this is the great lesson about docu and stuff, right? You put a camera on something, it changes you as a person. But the second the cameras came in, it became less about a pitch or a development meeting and much more about everybody playing to the cameras. Uh, we were directly across the table from Oprah. Izzy and I are kicking each other under the under the table. And Oprah's asking us questions about our love life. Um, so love lives, I should say. That that implies we're together. We weren't yeah, yeah. together. Like our love lives, singular. Um, but she was, you know, trying to mimic my accent and really put us off guard. And we were thinking, this is so surreal. And I just kept getting back to the agenda. Um, and at one point she put her hands on the table and leaned across the, the boardroom table and kind of looked directly at me and said, Rob. You just want to get on with this meeting, don't you? She, she was having she was having fun, uh, like playing stuff up and asking us, you know, things that were, were relevant to Love Town USA's concept, but were about us personally. And and she said, "You just want to get." I, I can tell you just want to get on with the meeting. And we were all business, and she was all fun. But she agreed to be in the first episode, uh, and as a result of that, she realised that she wanted to be more involved. So she ended up executing and staying a lot longer on location. So we spent three weeks in Georgia. Um, where she'd never been to before. So Oprah coming to, to a small town in Georgia was a big deal. Oh, my gosh. Um, she came three times through the process. And st- at one point, she stayed four or five days. So the showrunner, because I was the exec for the BBC. Was this was this for OWN? What network was it for? Yes, okay. it was for OWN. It yeah. was an interesting premise. It was what happens to a town when the entire town thinks about love for 30 days. Like, what could you achieve? Mm. Romantic love, plutonic love, love of service, love of your fellow neighbor. So we found a town where the whole town signed up to this. And Oprah knew if she came and kicked off the experiment, it would be a success. Um, She ended up coming several times. Uh, Bruce Toms, fantastic showrunner, who's sadly no longer with us, but taught so many people, um, lots of reality formats. He show ran. Um, So he and I got to have uh, dinner with Oprah every night at the end of filming for the, the four or five days in a row that she was with us, which was which was fun and an education because by then we'd relaxed a little bit. We weren't so freaked out about But what, what would I be surprised to take away from the Oprah experience, just her as an individual? How much fun she is. Really? Like, as a, yeah, she, she wants to get down and dirty and have a good time with you. <laughs> she wants to have a, cocktail, have a cocktail. And she, you know, she, it's disarming because when you have a meeting with her and she asks you a question, it's like you're being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. Right. Um, but she's also so good at it that you do find yourself giving up stuff that you didn't expect to do. And I'm thinking, I'm a very, I like to think I'm a professional person. So in, in those sort of meetings, I'm like, this is not the place to be asking me that I'm here to do a job. I'm here to get things done. But I've realized over time, actually, the more human you are as a, as a person, the more it informs your work, the more you're actually a much nicer person to be around, you know, as a, as a colleague or, or to, you know, to run a department. So I've kind of, loosened up a little bit. I used to take doing well so seriously that it was actually to the detriment of the work in the end. I think I think it's a line I just heard watching uh, the the series Ozark and I think it's I think it's the leader of the cartel who says uh, a man who only talks business is a failure in in life basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's taken me a long time to realize that being op- opening myself up to being more honest at work whereas I used to think that that was not professional or not appropriate actually now it makes you a, a more well-rounded human, you know, which means you're nicer to be around. Not that hopefully I wasn't because I'm not a shouter. I never have been. But but it, it just helps 
you know, your your audience are real people. We should be, we need to be human first and producers second. Uh, And sometimes when you're in the thick of it and you're in the trenches, and if you're a hands-on producer, you are, even if you're an exec or not, it's easy to forget that. Yeah, I, you're right. In the heat of battle, it is really hard when there's pressures all over the place, financial, uh, personal repercussions at stake. But I just always come back to reminding myself that we all started as TV nerds and geeks. (laughs) That's that's where we all started. And here we are. And we all got into this business in the first place because we didn't want to have real jobs for a living, which is like, you know, <laughs> you know like where there's real life or death stakes, um, you know, we get to put on a show every day for, for a living. And I always come back to that at the end of the day when I'm at my most like anxiety filled moment of my work. Day. But, but sometimes we are dealing with life or death situations and there's no oh, time sure. for, for being, you know, for being, you know, sort of shallow or, or kind of playing. Sure, but, but, most, have... but most times we're figuring out how we're going to get our, our host to hit their mark Some sign, and, yeah. and, and, and make the day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now you've mentioned John Murray uh, a couple of times when you got brought in, to show run Project Runway All Stars, was that was that with Buna Murray, or was that with the Elves? Uh, I was at the Elves when I or just I just left the Elves when I got the call. I was doing the spin off of Top Chef, okay, Top Chef Masters, got which it. may have been the reason that I was brought in to talk about Project Runway because I ended up doing the spin off for Project Runway. And at that point, okay, guys, so you had been at the Elves for Top Chef, but. At this point, Project Runway has moved over to Buna Murray with Lifetime. Oh, yeah. Oh, several, several seasons, I think. Okay. Or, or actually, actually maybe, I think just one season. But they were certainly in production on, their, um, on the Buna Murray production of Project Runway for Lifetime. Right. But you started, you started the All-Stars. Yes. Right? So a year, or two, yeah. a year or two into the Lifetime era, yeah. um, the Weinstein Company, who owned the format, yep. and Buna Murray, who were making it, wanted to create some sort of spin-off to utilize the talents of these professional, now professional uh, fashion designers, but didn't know what to do with them. Was it a docu-series about them? Is it, is it a celebrity version? Is it, so we, so I, I had a meeting with John and he said, you know, we have this idea, why don't you meet the Weinsteins and, and play around with this? And, and it became Project Runway All Stars because ultimately Lifetime wanted a very similar structure, but the show was very different in tone. So it was an absolute ride. You know, it was to, to <laughs> well, because make it. yeah, because at this point the All Stars are are stars, right? And they now have businesses and and public images, and they're not those bright eyed people that they were when they were just you know civilian contestants, right? So not only are you dealing with your talent, meaning the hosts. But the contestants are now the talent as well. That's a lot of egos. Um, well, not yes, but professional egos because at that point their brand or their right. reputation as a designer in their industry, right. in their mind, they're fashion designers, and quite rightly, they're not reality TV stars. Right. So they have a reputation for a slightly different reason to uphold. So it was actually quite different. One of the hardest things about making uh, Project Runway All Stars, the, the kind of the professional designer version, the creative was fun because. Sarah Ray, who was the showrunner for, for Project Runway and myself, it was very clear whenever a creative came up, whether it was for uh, Project Runway or whether it was for All Stars, based on, is this a great creative endeavor or a challenge for a younger up and coming person in the industry? Or is this is this one that's more elevated or is couture based or, or is something that you want to see what a professional designer can do? So the creative was always fun. It was 
dealing with the designers was tricky in part because they've been on television before. Right. They've been through the process. They knew all of our producer tricks, um, but we knew what they knew. So we would always win out. But that show also wasn't the type of show, and boy, have I done many of these, that, that is all about explosive story. With All Stars, it was more about, uh, you know, I, I like working with on with contestants on shows who have a talent or have a skill to give them a platform to showcase what they can do and then to have people spin off and, and do it successfully in their own in their own right is, is, is a privilege to do as a producer. Obviously, you want to make a good story. You want to make an entertaining show. But, but I like working with the, the talented contestants or those sort of competition formats. Seven seasons of the All-Star contestants, John Murray, the Weinsteins, there's got to be a story in here that stands out where a moment you were placed in the middle as the showrunner. But you think television is crazy? You're like, no, no, the record industry, they're the crazy ones. You're like, no, no, the movie people, they're the crazy ones. Let me tell you, fashion is a very unique world. I'll just, maybe I'll just, should just leave it at that. No, no, but give me, give me, give me something. Give me a moment that you stands out that was the craziest situation you as a showrunner. Because as a showrunner, every day there's a fire. Right, sure. whether it's whether it's a network ask, a production company ask, a talent thing that throws you for a loop, what was like the one thing that stands out from your day show running that was maybe the hardest thing you had to face and, and overcome? Yeah, it was all production issues. It wasn't really story related. Um, you know, we knew thanks to John Murray and and Bunny Murray's storytelling, you know, mentorship, we kind of knew how to handle the creative moments. I would always push creatively, and I was told you can't afford it. You don't want to, you know. The, Somebody doesn't want that. Uh, let's give it to the other show that's bigger. Um, so I would always push for creative. There's no way we could afford to take the show to Paris for two days to film with Valentino. The budget just wouldn't sustain. We found a way. Mm-hmm. Um, just think, you know, things like that. We would always find a way creatively. It was production issues. There was like, you know, we, we kicked out of our location. We, we never had the same location for each season. Each season was greenlit within six weeks of, you know, green light right. to shooting. Right. So you're, 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 luckily casting was easier because we had the pool of alumni to choose from. But to find a location in New York in the summer on a small budget, you know, we were kicked out of our workroom the day before we started shooting. And we shot the entire first episode without a location. We were just moving the show around New York City. Um, whilst behind the scenes, my production management was trying to ne- renegotiate a deal and get us into a space. And I didn't, we, you know, we, the cast were unaware because I wanted them focused on their job. Um, and ultimately, the creative for that episode was phenomenal because it pushed all of us to do something different. But there's, like you said, it's the, you put out the fire on your shoes before the fire across the street, and it never stopped in seven years. And I loved it. <laughs> Is it, what was the biggest learning curve for you spending this many years as a showrunner now being the network, the network exec, you know, it's, it's hard because, you know, I think my, you know, Tim Pastor, who used to be at all three media, um, he would say that there's indoor cats and there's outdoor cats, right. And outdoor cats being the showrunners, the production people and indoor cats being the people that are in the office all day, either developing shows or working corporate jobs. And you've now stepped into a role that's traditionally you're expected to be an indoor cat, right. But you've spent many, many years on the battle lines. So has it been hard for you to not overstep Yes, it was. But but I went into the job knowing that that would be my biggest challenge. So mm-hmm. I was always conscious of it. I didn't always succeed, but I was always conscious of it. So this is twofold, right? Because I think that there is a huge advantage to being a hands-on producer and moving on to different jobs in our in our business. 
you know, across the board. It's kind of like being a development producer and being uh, a, a physical, you know, practical producer or showrunner. I always think that you should swap out every now and again. You know, you get fatigue on both sides, so you should have both skill sets. Mm-hmm. You know, do six months in development, go to six months produce, or vice versa, or whatever it is. So, I do think that there's value uh, from your pr- practical production experience going into an executive job. But you're absolutely right. I'm not the showrunner of this show anymore. I love it. I support it. I think it works for my demo. The notes that I can give are not they're, they're not showrunner notes. It's not my show. It's the showrunner show. It's the production company show. My job as the network exec is to steer it so that it works for our audience. For the audience, yeah. And, and that note I can give because I've been in meetings that the, you know the, sh- the showrunner and the creative team and the production company are their priority is the show, and my priority. Well, all our priorities is to make a hit show. You know, you want to be on a hit show. You want to make a hit show. You yeah. want to sell a hit show. Whatever it is. But in the in the network with with those research meetings that you mentioned, with marketing, with programming, scheduling, press, you know, finance, even all of those have informed the person in my job to tweak the format or the casting or the talent of the story or whatever it is, so that it works perfectly for the network's needs. That's my role. How much was Nickelodeon even on your radar? Like as a consumer, as someone who didn't grow up out here, right? Like, like for American, I, I can only speak from my own experience, right? But like in an American culture, for anybody that was raised in the 80s and 90s, Nickelodeon was like part of, you know, who you were, part of your existence. For, for you coming out here in the 2000s, how much did you even understand of like Nickelodeon's presence in pop culture out here? Uh, I was aware of it as a pop culture consumer, but yeah. but not not re- not to, to answer your question in gen- a general answer. No, I wasn't aware because it's it's not a brand that's absolutely huge in the UK. Um, if you have kids, then of course it's in your household, and so you are more aware. I don't have children, um, so and I hadn't really done a lot of kids and kids and family programming before. Like I said, it was an opportunity that I jumped at, and and I, I think in some ways. The, the lack of that knowledge has been helpful because sure. you've got fresh eyes. You can yep. see things in a different way, but hugely deferential to the history. And I had a very fast history lesson. So I understand Nick is, is a brand. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a network. Um, and it's premium quality content in whatever genre it is. And I have huge respect for that. And, you know, because apart from the obvious ex- exceptions, they haven't done much unscripted. If I was coming in and it had a huge legacy, the same way our animation night totally. does, then maybe I'd be a little bit more um, nervous about about coming in. But, and also, it's kids. The demo changes every year. The strategy yeah. changes all the time based on a young demo's needs. So it wasn't as difficult as another network that has got the same goal or strategy or tone year in, year out. Before we go, what's coming up? on the horizon that we should be excited for for Nickelodeon. Let's just bring it full circle, Jimmy, because I'm in the middle of the Kids' Choice Awards. Oh, right now you are? Yeah, we, um, uh, Saturday, March 13th, 7.30 p.m. Oh, yeah. You find Nick is Kids' Choice 2021. We have a hybrid of some incredible XR technology and a practical stage that features uh, the biggest slime lagoon that we have ever had. So it's a mix of production value, uh, yeah, mix of different sort of production media. But the only way you can do it, and every network exec knows this, is to be present in the meeting 
whether it's the phone call, the Zoom, in person, whatever it is these days, to be to be present and focused on that job in that moment and not to think about the 30 other shows that you have that day to deal with. Right. Otherwise, you go under. Is that something you've discussed with other network executives? Have you talked to them about managing in the position and kind of, is, is there like this bubble of network executives that you've like, you know, used for guidance along the way? Is your you're two years I think into the gig. I mean, you tell me, I think it's a bit of a misnomer that everybody keeps their skill set or their experience or their secrets close to their chest. I think in certainly in unscripted, the community, maybe it's because we were born out of uh, a, a strike in another genre to, you know, to some degree, or we are constantly solving problems that as a community, we share. We share information. I'm an oversharer. I would rather have the PA be aware. I mean, obviously, there's, there's confidential things, but I don't mind if people are listening in. I don't mind if people come to set. We should right. share our knowledge. And that means sharing our knowledge with fellow showrunners, yeah. you know, sharing our war stories if you're over a drink or whatever it is, doing things like this, talking to you so people can hear about some stuff that I've been through. Um, you know, we all, we each have our, our own experience. And, and I think all network execs, um, you know, a juggle, a constantly juggling. Yeah. The way I deal with it is just to be to be focused in the moment on that show. Otherwise, it would over, overwhelm me. I don't know. Others might be able to deal with it better. But when I got the job at Nick, um, David Hillman, who is my fantastic networking sec at Lifetime on Project Runway, um, we went out for dinner. And I'd only been in the job just a couple of days. And it was like a, literally a 180. I was like, oh my God, I just have to apologize for every time I pushed you too hard or you, I thought you didn't understand what we were trying to do or didn't care. Now I realize what you guys are dealing with on the other side. And of course, he's gone freelance and now runs um, scripted you know, for um, a production company. So he's now out and pitching. So it all comes full circle. So the only way you can survive is just to share the love, right? Spread the love. That's right. Well, dude, you've been lovely. I appreciate you doing this. <laughs> you I appreciate too. you making time. I know how busy you are. Was this okay? Did you have fun? Yeah, you don't realize how much you know until it until you're just reminded of some show or some experience, and then you can just you just tell your story. I don't I don't know if I know anything. I've just just been around. <laughs> well, you've tons of experience. I mean, as much showrunning experience as anybody I've ever had on the show. I don't think I've had anybody with this much showrunning experience ever on the show before. It, uh, well, I was just freelance. I was just really freelance. I only did like two year stints at one or two production companies. Most of the time, I went from show to show to show right. to show. That's right. how you you get up all those get those rack up all of those credits. Well, thanks for joining me, man. Enjoy Vegas. Go 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 hit the tables if you're allowed to. No, nothing. <laughs> no, I go from the hotel room to the rehearsal room. You're escorted. You're tested every day. You're Sounds behind awful. a mask. I don't don't know what any of my colleagues look like. You can't uh, you we, can't put in an NBA bet or anything while you're out there. You can't bet on basketball or anything real quick. You can't just swoop well, by the the sports book and and lay a hundy down on the Warriors. Well, you know me by now. You know I'm a producer, so it's work first. I'll have a martini on the way or okay. on the way home. Sure, but yeah. I'm here for work. Don't tell it. Don't tell Nickelodeon otherwise. <laughs> All right, Rob. <laughs> Thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Oh, you're doing a great job, Jimmy, helping to to share what we do and celebrate unscripted. So thank you very much. Thanks, man.